Recently on your Instagram, we saw you cut into a potato scallop, squeeze it, and then a splooge of tomato sauce come out. Years down the line, would you be happy to be remembered as the guy who invented the self-sourcing potato scallop? 100%. My Christmas cake is dry. Is there anything you can help me out with here? Oh, this is really dear Lisa, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Hi there, guys. I'm Maggie Scartyfield, and welcome to Gourmet Traveler's Set Menu. As Christmas approaches and we get closer to summer holidays, seafood cravings kick in. So there feels like no finer time to chat to Australia's seafood maestro, Josh Nyland, chef at St Peter in Paddington. He's the winner of this year's Gourmet Traveller Award for Best New Talent and one of the most exciting young chefs in the country. He sits down with Gourmet Traveller's Dave Matthews to talk us through his whirlwind year. Earlier this year, there were reports of great white sharks washing up uh, dead on beaches with only uh, their livers missing. <laughs> After scratching their heads for a while, people decided that killer whales had been chasing the sharks and then eating the liver out of them. Uh, is that true or was it you? <laughs> Might have been one of my guides, but um, no, that's not true. Um, there's not too many sharks and killer whales that are sustainable, so <laughs> we, we take them out of, the, out of the good fish. But we have harvested a lot of livers this year mm. um <laughs> and they've all been delicious oh great yeah i mean i asked because one of your dishes uh that's become a bit of a signature at uh, your restaurant st peter in paddington sydney yeah. uh is your john dory liver on toast or an english muffin yep uh you only get whole fish in right yes um so obviously you're ending up with all the offal and all the bits and bulbs that are inside yeah and you're seeing these huge livers yeah at what point did you go maybe i could eat that Working for Steve Hodges at Fish Face in Darlinghurst, we used to go through significant volumes of fish. Um, so, you know, you'd be down in a very poorly lit prep kitchen going, you know, a little bit sideways because all you're touching all day is fish or potatoes. So uh, under those fluoros, you kind of start thinking that anything might be delicious. So it started with boxes of flathead Mm. where you would see the row of the fish so we'd start salting them down and having a taste and seeing what that was like so it was like a you know dodgy bataga (laughs) um and then all the other bits um were a little bit too blood congealed and not so nice and then the other clean part of the offal was the liver so Mm. then we started cooking the, the liver and i put it on toast with some parsley and it was delicious so we did that for a period of time I think when I was 19 um, which was yeah 10 years ago now and I know that livers have been used thoroughly all throughout restaurant kitchens everywhere but I suppose that particular dish stuck with me and I tried to always put it on wh- wherever I was um, wherever I was working just because there's always a liver around in a fish if, mm. if you're buying whole fish so now that it's at St Peter we can kind of say that we're you know nose to tail and everything's great in between and we've got a recipe now for every single part of the fish so if i buy a whole john dory with, yep. with its guts in yes um, which can be kind of rare to find that's right um am i going to be able to tell pretty easily what the liver is in there yeah um well i mean come come winter time if if you go out and buy a john dory whole um it'll almost outweigh the size of the fillet it's an extraordinarily large piece of offal like it's it's huge and it's like solid butter you you know touch it it should be really firm it shouldn't really leave an impression with your finger if you if you touch it mm. and there shouldn't be any imperfections it should actually be like almost like a caramel color like a real pale brown 
um, and should smell good. When people think about fish, probably the first thing that comes to mind with quality um, and with what we're told to look for if we're buying it is freshness. Mm. Uh, but in your locker at St. Peter, you've got barcode that's maybe two weeks old. You've got Spanish mackerel that's been sitting in there for a week. Tuna that's been aging for two weeks again. Um, and then you'll serve that to people. Uh, but, you know, they're not just sitting there waiting for you to use them. Um, can you explain to us what you're doing when you dry edge a fish and how you started doing that? Um, so again, it's kind of a lot of this fish thinking like comes back to working at Fish Face with Stephen Hodges. Um, he, you know, there was probably a time where he was in inverted commas dry aging fish, but not really celebrating the idea of, you know, maturation of fish to find flavors. It was out of being a small restaurant the same licensing capacity that we are at 34 seats he um he would buy large quantities of fish because obviously there'd be a time where it's like well bass grove is awesome let's get 60 kilos of it and it's like oh my god how are we going to sell it all Mm. um but with the right facilities with the static cool room and all that sort of stuff he was able to just put them in there and we would you know turn the fish every night give them a wipe down look after them and so then nine days later we may have move through it all mm-hmm. but that was always something that he really trained me to do was to always have a plan for any wastage any you know bits and pieces what to do with the last portion of something so a lot of that was good training for how to lower your you know food cost and and minimize waste so but the aging side of things i just thought about all the stuff that he had implemented at fish face with the static cool room but then with ours, we took it a step further and we put a rail into the top of this static walk-in fridge that I have, which is like a shower rail, basically. How does a static fridge work? Static fridge is like an old-fashioned refrigeration uh-huh. system with copper coil that lines the back wall and it gets the temperature down to between zero and one degrees. Yep. Um, and there's no assistance of a fan, so there's no air blowing around so it it mimics like an esky without the assistance of ice so there's no moisture in there at all Um, and it's just cold dry air so with the rail in the roof we were able to put hooks on them and then we can hook up our fish and that wasn't a gimmick like to start having fish on hooks and taking cool photos of them (laughs) that was to hang the fish so that air passes around the outside of it and then it never came in contact with its own moisture or with the moisture from another fish if it was laying down on a tray. Mm. Even if the tray's perforated, it'll still sweat. It's like if you put your arm on the bench and leave it there for 20 minutes, you'll have a sweaty arm. And then you'll smell your arm and it'll probably smell like sweaty arm. Gross. <laughs> it's gross. It's like wearing a cast on your arm. Yeah. You know, it's that whole thing about just applying a little logic to you know <clears throat> getting it hung up it's dry um you continue to look after it every night you wipe it down and and through that period of time that it hangs then you develop nuances in the fish which assist us into putting them with a vegetable or a sauce that best like that makes sense so our food at st peter starts with working out what the fish tastes like and then planning backwards and then putting a garnish with it rather mm. than starting with a garnish and then putting it with a fish okay so what will happen to say uh you know tuna loin if you're aging it what, what's going to happen to the flavor in that after two weeks say the flavor basically goes from conventional raw tuna taste on day one which is of the sea and briny and delicious and clean and then through that period of time i think we've pushed one out to 42 days 42 days 
And then at the end of that, basically, you've got a product that tastes like Mahama, like a cured tuna, but still with the texture of a raw tuna. So what's happened is you've been able to extract a percentage of moisture while still suspending the oils of the fish within, mm. without those oils rancidifying, I suppose, and going sour. If you can find the balance of the right amount of moisture with the right amount of oil, then you end up with a fish that tastes exactly of tuna, and then you can really articulate what tuna tastes like and then pair it best with something. So I guess anyone who gets a 42-day aged piece of tuna is pretty lucky yeah. at your restaurant. Well, yeah, it's a lot of um, there's a lot of love that goes into something like that. And I never wanted St. Peter to be, you know, a quirky, hip kind of, um, you know, forever chasing the next titled dish. It was always to be just a really be- the best piece of fish you could have and then a really nice um, garnish so that you could have your fish dinner once or twice a week with us um, I suppose those other dishes that you're talking about are a um, uh, what's the word <laughs> trying to allow us as chefs to express ourselves um, in tasteful ways um, and as well like no one's really gone out and tried to really pull apart the fish system of what you can do and what you can achieve with the fish mm. so to do a king george white in kiev um is really cool because chicken kievs have always worked so why wouldn't you know a, a fish kiev work so you start taking some butchery techniques out of the meat world and apply them into a fish and then all of a sudden you can do sword aged swordfish on the bone and it looks like a sirloin and you know you can do roasted swordfish bone marrow and it looks like you know that like from the meat world so we can't really put a chicken kiev on a menu these days without it being like retro or something so (laughs) a whiting kiev is a good idea um we're rolling into christmas which uh for a lot of people means you know your typical stuffed prawns oysters um you know maybe a lobster or a whole fish um Mm. to barbecue for example Mm. um do you have any advice for getting the best out of these or like, you know, suggestions for something, you know, a bit different you can do at Christmas? Yeah. Um, last year we started, uh, well, we started too late last year and it's definitely something that we're starting a bit earlier with this year and that's doing our fish hams. So we took a whole cobia <laughs> last year and we turned it into a Christmas ham. We started it with cloves and we glazed it and it looked like a, a leg of ham. So I suppose have a look at a few different meat dishes that you may have had over the years and see whether you could replace that with a fish. Um, and then as well, I suppose, if you are going to commit to buying some prawns or lobster or marron, something like that that is significant, have a thought for the next day about if somebody doesn't eat through all your prawns mm. that day, then what are you doing with the rest of it? And like all the shells and different things like that, you can make nice soups out of and, and just think a little bit broader. Mm. Like don't just go for the jugular. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Christmas is a it's a difficult time with seafood. Uh, you can be out shopping, um, trying to prepare days in a, days yeah. ahead. Everybody's at the markets. Um, it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. If I have to buy, if I'm going to buy prawns or yeah. you know some other some other favourites, um, you know, what's the best way to to keep it? What's the best way to store it in my fridge so it's going to be in uh, top condition on on the day? Yeah. So 
uh, going down to the fish markets, I suppose the guys the guys down there in in their shops they start purchasing their prawns throughout the year, um, almost to to keep up with the demand. Because in in those few days through uh, Christmas, when they do that marathon of like everybody does a bender down there, <laughs> thirty six hours straight. Yeah, isn't that's it? right. At Sydney Fish Market. Yeah, so they basically are working towards that the whole year so they've got their stock on hand and then in three days they're like wiped and then mm. the process begins again to um to keep up so they're purchasing prawns at the best time of the year um to have ready for you in in top condition even like frozen prawns are excellent prawns there's nothing wrong with a frozen prawn um and so it, it is a good idea to start getting those things soon. Um, and then if you have the space, then put them in your freezer so that you are ready to go. And then when you do uh, the night before Christmas Eve, or even if you wanted to go one day sooner, you could defrost them. Ideally, you let them defrost on a, on a perforated tray so that they can, you know, naturally defrost without, you know, drowning them in water. Um, and so... When you're defrosting prawns, it's best to lay them out on a um, perforated tray so that they can defrost properly. And then you can peel the prawns and leave them on that perforated tray for Christmas Day so they're ready to go. Um, It's best not to go too far ahead in advance because then that whole melanosis process starts and they go black. And Uh. then it starts getting that iodine taste that is really not that pleasant. Um, So another thing as well when purchasing fresh fish if you're taking a fillet like if you're buying fillets of fish um i ideally as close as you can to to the big day um it would be best to stir that store that on you know either a wire rack if you've only got a wire rack or a perforated tray in your crisper like in your veg drawer because you can control how much air comes in, how much doesn't, uh, and it's a nice static, even temperature. There's no fan blowing over it. Your skin's not going to go to jerky status. It'll remain nice and moist. Um, and and then by that stage, then you can pull it out and then portion it up and cook it. Um, if you buy fish on the bone, same thing. Make sure it's gutted when you get it. Um, it's been scaled and then same advice store it on a wire rack in the crisper and then take it off the bone the day you need it and then it'll be a far superior fish should i do you, should i cover them with plastic or anything or mm. uh with fillets like if you've got exposed flesh it's best to use go between um go between's always something that we just burn through at the restaurant we don't use cling film at all if you've used cling film on any fish products or any protein in general it sweats so I mean, the it's always ever been that people always use cling film, and again I'll go back to the thing where if you cling filmed your arm and you left it, your arm would smell gross. <laughs> and that's the same thing. You're promoting what is what is fishy about fish, and people come to the restaurant. It's like I don't want anything that's fishy, and it's like well that's not going to be an issue because nothing we do is fishy. Even a fish that's 16 17 days aged won't be fishy Mm -hmm. just because we don't let it sweat we don't apply moisture it's all dry handled so avoid cling film with fish at all costs (laughs) (laughs) don't use chucks either chucks that blue cloth like those chucks cloths have got a small amount of like detergent in it almost and that's for cleaning up things Mm. like you shouldn't use chucks on fish like they carry like they they retain moisture carry the moisture so if you wrap up a fillet of fish in 
chucks cloth, then it takes on the moisture of fish, and then that moisture starts to get funky as well. So then you're wrapping it in its own funk. So best advice, wire rack, dry, don't put water anywhere near it, and go-between, because go-between allows the fish to ventilate, and it doesn't create this weird little atmosphere. G'day guys, this is Josh Nyland from St. Peter Restaurant in Paddington. Uh, This year at Gourmet Traveller's Christmas Boutique, we're going to be selling our fish weight. Um, If you've been into the restaurant, you might have seen me clanging around um, these really heavy fish weights that sit above my head. Um, Basically, they assist you to produce a really great crisp skin on the fish and also allow the heat to transfer from the skin up to the top of the fillet without really needing to put it through the oven. So we've kind of come up with this design which is inspired by Stephen Hodges and Greg Doyle from years gone by they've all been using fish weights even kitchens around town they're all either stacking pots on top of fish or using a pizza tray with a little weight on top it's all about trying to get that real even crisp skin so uh, we've, we've got this great food grade stainless steel um, with a little handle on it the handle itself doesn't heat up so really great that you know you don't have to worry about burning yourself but it allows you to get this wonderful crisp skin even cooking um, and we'll be selling them um, over at the gourmet traveler boutique store the gourmet traveler christmas boutique is open now until christmas eve you're listening to gourmet traveler's set menu and before we go Today, a conversation about chaos in the kitchen. Gourmet Traveller editor Sarah Oakes talks to senior food editor Lisa Featherby. They're talking how to get out of some classic tight spots in the kitchen on Christmas Day. Look, this is our scenario, Lisa. We're in the kitchen. It's Christmas Day. It's probably really hot or weirdly cold. We've selected a whole bunch of overly ambitious recipes and one of them fails. We don't have your phone number to ring you up and ask you what to do. So ahead of time, today I want to troubleshoot some common Christmas cooking conundrums with you. Are you ready? I'm ready. It's that time of year. (laughs) We're in the kitchen. (laughs) We've got the pork going and the crackling is just not getting crispy. Where do we go from here? Okay. So uh, the crackling's not crispy. You haven't dried it out enough, the skin out enough. So um, after you've roasted the pork... If it's not crackling up, um, best thing to do is turn the grill on and put it under the grill and just give it a hot flash. The more heat you can inject into that uh, skin, then you'll, you'll get it to crackle because the fat will dry out and then crackle. Um, so, But you've got to be very careful when you're actually grilling the uh, crackling and keep a vigilant eye on it. Otherwise, you know, there's another disaster about to mm. happen and you could get burnt crackle instead. To take it a step back, what we should have done in our preparation is let it dry out more. We're talking like in the fridge, covered and salted. Yeah, so the best thing to do with um, with the, to get the perfect crackling is um, you, the day before, you want to score your pork skin um, and that's going to open up the fat that comes underneath the skin to the air and then just leave it uncovered in the fridge overnight. So you're really just drying up all that extra moisture. Great, okay, next problem. We've prepared the turkey, possibly one of the many recipes on gourmettraveler.com.au, and we've got it at the ready, but it does not fit into the oven. Is there any way out from here? Um, well, I think you've ordered a really super <laughs> huge turkey, and maybe like you've or yeah, maybe definitely a really small oven. <laughs> 
Look, I think the best way to cook turkey anyway is to actually remove the legs from the crown part of the, um, the breast area. Um, so if you're thinking it's not going to fit, and obviously when you get your turkey home, um, just check it in a roasting pan and see if that's that's going to be the case because it does take a long time to cook anyway. Mm. Um, so if it's not going to fit, I would carve the legs off the crown and I would start cooking them earlier than the breasts. Um, at a lower temperature is better because the leg is a, a working muscle compared to the breast, which is, uh, isn't used much. That's why you always find that, you know, you've either got a dried out breast, um, you know, or the legs aren't cooked through properly. So it's actually better for you to just separate the two and cook them separately. Let's move on to dessert. My Christmas cake is dry. Is there anything you can help me out with here? Oh, this is really dear Lisa, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Dear Lisa. Dear Lisa. (laughs) Help me. Uh, The Christmas cake is dry. Okay, well... um, Let's backtrack maybe about how you can make sure it's moist to begin with. And um, and that's actually starting by macerating your fruit well ahead um, so that you're actually plumping up the fruit with, um, with lots of alcohol. The moister the fruit, the better quality the dry fruit that goes into your Christmas cake um, is going to uh, impact the final result. Um, but, you know, um, if you've actually baked it and going to serve it and you realise it's too um, dry, look, it's meant to be boozy. So I'd get out your best bottle of cognac and douse it with that and just let that soak in for a few minutes and then serve it. I mean, Christmas is about adding that booze element, so try that. You've improved the cake. The cake is better. (laughs) This is uh, from a personal experience I witnessed last Christmas. Uh, My mother-in-law, I think, makes one of the best Christmas puddings that I've ever tasted. Last year, and she does it with such flourish, she turns the pudding out, she tosses a brandy over it, she lights it up, it's on fire. It's a beautiful thing. But last year when she flipped it over, it refused to exit the tin. It was just stuck in there. And I could see the look of panic and distress on her face. Is there a, is there a solution to this? Can we backtrack again? What should we have done so this doesn't happen? Yeah, so backtracking on this one, um, you've got to make sure that you grease your pudding basin really well before you actually cook it. Um, I feel sorry for your mum, especially at the end of Christmas meal, you know, when everyone's like, you know, a little bit tired from all the cooking and festivities. Um, The other option is obviously you cannot do much to it once it's turned out. If it's sticking, um, I'd try and gently put it back into the basin and maybe pry it out with a a long knife getting around the sides. If that doesn't work, then I think you need a plan B, which would probably be to just try and um, pretty up the top a little bit and maybe top it with some beautiful cherries and peaches and, you know, red currants and all those beautiful Christmas flavours. If that doesn't work and you have turned it out and it's just a flop, well then... If it's beautifully edible, that's okay. I think just plate it up in the kitchen, pour a bit of custard over it and take it to the table like that and maybe just throw a bowl of cherries in the middle Mm. of the table just to distract everyone. That's right. (laughs) Unless you've got an open kitchen, no one knows this has happened. Exactly. Yes, do everything behind the scenes. (laughs) And have a helper too. Mm. I think it's really important to not take on that responsibility in the kitchen, you know, for Christmas. And don't drink too much either, I think. Mm-hmm. That helps. <laughs> sage sage advice from Lisa there. Or two. I don't know. Talking of custard, the custard split, can we get out of this one or do we just need to start again? 
Okay, yeah, split custard is like um, pretty hard to reverse. Uh, I think with anything you're doing, especially if you've got this massive day you're preparing for, it's a big day, you've got a lot of people coming, you know, plan ahead, do as much as you can ahead. Um, a custard is meant to be, um, well, a creme anglaise, you know, is good to be served chilled. Um, so, you know, it can be made a few days ahead. I would actually uh, have a go at making a classic anglaise, which is a foundation of eggs, egg yolks, sugar and milk. The problem is that these three elements, um, you know, can change in structure when they're being cooked. So it's really important to watch your temperature. Don't try and rush this because custard cannot be rushed. It needs to be a slow process and a constant stirring when you're, when you're actually cooking it. So you've done that, you've, you get it to 82 degrees, which is the perfect setting point for custard and it should be fine if you've done it very carefully. Um, and then chill it straight away over a bowl of ice and that's fine. Okay. So you have rushed it um, and it's splitting. As soon as you see the mixture splitting, um, stop the cooking process. That's really important because the more heat that goes into it, the more the proteins are going to split up and separate from the liquid. Um, so panic then <laughs> and get it to the sink and get it into some cold water, the, the base of the saucepan. And then what you can do um, is try and re-emulsify the mixture, maybe with a handheld blender. If it comes back, um, then I would just chill it from there. If it doesn't, then I'm afraid you've got to start all over again. So, um, but doing it ahead, you know, you'll combat that. Know that there's a bit of science in those kind of things. And if it's your first time making it, definitely try it ahead. Okay, great. So we can possibly bring it back to life, but I think the key lesson here is just don't be doing that on Christmas Day. Make your custard early. Make everything early. Make, everything Make early. it easy on yourself, yeah. Let's close with pavlova. Now, the latest issue of Gourmet Traveller is full of pavlovas. I think we have nine going off the top of my head. Yeah, nine we've gone pav crazy this gone, year. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone should go pav crazy once a year. Um, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to make. We've got a masterclass that takes you step by step through it. Of course we do. But pavlova problems, the big one is the worst time of year to make a pavlova, of course, is when it, when it is incredibly humid. And when is it incredibly humid? Always at Christmas. So should we not make a pavlova if it's humid? How do we get around this? Yeah, that is a really good question. And um, humidity is the nemesis of meringue. So... Um, Look, if it's going to be humid, I think you're, you're okay. Um, basically, if you're doing all these things like pavlova, ham, turkey, you, you're going to have to actually figure out how you're going to use that time in the oven anyway. Um, I would actually put the pavlova on the night before in the oven and cook it and then turn it off and let it cool overnight in the oven. And then, so that residual heat will keep it crisp. Then take it out first thing in the morning when it's cool and put it into a uh, airtight container, so that'll stop any humidity getting at it. And I think that that'll be fine if you do that. Um, I think um, if it's left out for too long, you know, obviously the humidity is going to affect it. Um, but yeah, it shouldn't be shouldn't you know shouldn't be too bad. And um, you definitely need to cook one of those uh, pavlova recipes in the Gourmet Traveller. Everything <laughs> that you do. And one last pav problem. It comes out, it looks pretty good, but it's cracked. Oh, it's cracked. It's fine. 
It's absolutely yeah. fine if it's cracked. A pavlova, I think, should be cracked. Um, it shows that the pavlova's got a beautiful crust on the outside. Um, in fact, be proud of your cracks in your pavlova. Right. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, a beautiful pavlova should be crusty on the outside and have that beautiful marshmallow centre. So when obviously when it's cooking in the heat in, from the oven is expanding it um, and then it cools, it, it might crack a bit. So it's totally fine. Mm. Don't worry about it. Okay, good pavlova is a cracked pavlova. What are you doing for Christmas this year? Where will you be? Okay, oh, Christmas for me this year, talking of humidity, um, I am going to India. So I'm taking a sojourn up north to India to Jaipur. So I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds beautiful. The bad news for us, of course, is that Lisa will not be available by phone for any disasters (laughs) that we have in our own kitchens. We're on our own. But hopefully uh, we've given you all the advice that you need to have a reasonably stress-free Christmas. I think the message is do everything before the 25th of December and you'll have a great day. Do it ahead. Have fun. Have a beautiful fail-safe Christmas and... uh, Yeah, I'll be enjoying India. Enjoy. (laughs) Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. That's it for the show today. Make sure you pick up a copy of our Christmas issue packed with clever, entertaining ideas on sale now. And if you're on the lookout for the perfect gift for the food lover in your life, then you must swing by our Christmas boutique in Sydney. All the details are at sorrythanksiloveyou.com forward slash gourmet traveller and you can shop the entire range online. Thanks for listening. 